Chapter 10 Who Owns the Future Generation? He who controls the youth of this generation will dominate the next. Just about all great movements and leaders have recognised this principle. That's why fascism invested so much in its youth during the 1930s and early 1940s, even down to the end of World War II. In our time, there is a raging battle over who owns the future generation, today's children. The state would love nothing more than to capture them. But our courts answered this question a long time ago. In 1842, the legal system of Pennsylvania had to judge an interesting case. A Mr Armstrong had a 17-year-old daughter that a local minister wanted to baptise. Mr Armstrong, a Presbyterian, argued that his daughter had already been baptised as an infant and the minister had no right to take his daughter without his permission. In violation of the father's specific instructions, the minister baptised the girl anyway. Armstrong was so angry that he threatened the minister. The court made Armstrong put up $500 earnest money to guarantee that he would act peaceably for six months until the matter could be resolved. When it came to determining who would have to pay the court costs, the court ruled in favour of the father. The judge's comments reflected a very interesting understanding of the Bible. Judge Lewis said, quote, It was justly remarked by Horry, professor of moral philosophy, in his treatise upon that subject, that the words, train up a child in the way he should go, imply both the right and the duty of the parent to train it up in the right way, that is, the way which the parent believes to be right. The right of the father to command and the duty of the child to obey is shown upon the authority of the Old Testament to have been established by God himself. And the teaching of the New Testament abundantly prove that, instead of being abrogated in any respect, the duty of filial obedience was inculcated with all the solemn sanctions which could be derived from the new dispensation. In the fifth commandment, honour thy father and thy mother, was repeated and enjoined by St. Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. End quote. The judge was saying that the Old Testament taught that children should be placed in the Lord, and the New Testament did not change this concept, because Paul says children are to be raised in the Lord. Ephesians 6 1 not outside of him. So, what's the idea? The generational principle. It's the generational principle. The Bible teaches that Christianity is to grow generation by generation. This is the fifth principle of the covenant, continuity. The church is to expand through evangelism, but it is also to grow by raising up a holy seed, all through the Bible, children of believers are claimed by God. Abraham circumcised his household. Moses records, quote, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him, end quote. Genesis chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. The New Testament writers built on the same, the New Testament writers built on the same generational view of the faith. Luke says about the conversion of Lydia, quote, And when she and her household were baptised, she begged us, saying, 
If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. End quote. Acts chapter 16, verse 15. Notice that Lydia wanted them to judge her. Why not judge everyone else in her house? They didn't need to, since they judged her. She was the adult believer, representing the others. She stood for her children, and they were included in the covenant because of her faith. She knew it, and for that reason placed her children in the Lord. Nowhere in this generational principle, nowhere is this generational principle more clear than in God's words on Mount Sinai. He says in the third commandment, quote, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments, end quote. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. It takes more than one generation to build effective Christian leadership. Too often, modern Christianity thinks of learning character in just a few years. Look at how quickly new converts are placed in positions of leadership, or even get to write books, speak, and assume any number of important responsibilities. But scripture seems to indicate that several generations of biblical nurture are needed to raise up effective leaders. Often, the Bible stresses the third generation. Take Timothy as an example. Paul says, quote, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also, end quote. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. Note the three generations. Grandmother, mother, son. The history of Christianity has also confirmed this principle. Many, indeed most, of the great Christian leaders were not first-generation Christians. Charles Spurgeon was the seventh generation. Charles Wesley came from a long line of Christians. Matthew Henry, author of the famous one-volume commentary, descended from several generations of faithful Puritans. Jonathan Edwards was also the seventh generation. R.J. Rushduni is the seventh generation. R.J. Rushduni is the seventh generation minister in his family. On and on the list could go. Modern Christianity is too short-sighted. This one generational thinking was recently represented to me by one woman who said, quote, I don't think I need to teach my child to read because I think the rapture will take place first, end quote. With a view like this, is it any wonder that the state is capturing the future generation? So, faith grows generation by generation, each one building and standing on the shoulders of the good work of the previous generation. Anyone for a covenantal dynasty? Scripture makes it clear that there are three ingredients necessary to build a Christian dynasty. Of Abraham, the Bible says, quote, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what I am doing. End quote. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. Since all three believers are Abraham's seed, Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, three relevant points stand out for us today. Destiny, discipline, 
and dominion. God had a will and plan for Abraham that gave him destiny. He disciplined his children and he took dominion through them. Anyone who wants to extend his faith from one generation to another must inculcate these elements into the future generation. The curious thing, however, is that non-Christians are often more successful at extending their religion and morals over the generations. Some of these families have been so successful they have become dynasties. In May of 1979, the Wall Street Journal ran a series of articles titled Founding Families, May 7th, 1979. It was an interesting series on the great American dynasties like the Cabots, Astors and Rockefeller. In many respects, the articles in this series are a case study of both the oddities and distinctives of these great families. Yet, I found that this series, combined with further study of dynastic families, revealed definite patterns. To the degree that a family was able to cultivate these features, it was successful in becoming a dynasty. Destiny. First, the belief in destiny. The leading successful dynasties have been people of destiny. At least, they perceive themselves that way. To believe in destiny means that one conceives of someone or something having determined his life for some special purpose. Whether one believes he is destined by fate, God or chance, he thinks of himself as special. Great men and women, Julius Caesar, George Patton, Clara Barton, have generally adhered to some concept of destiny. They saw that there was some purpose for existence which transcended their lives. Not only is this true of great men and women, but the major ideologies of the world have all held to some concept of destiny. Christianity, Islam and Marxism. All three implicitly espouse a doctrine of destiny. That is, each person believes that the world belongs to him and that someday the world will be dominated by his religion. The concept of destiny, therefore, is not foreign to either the great individuals or ideologies of humanity. Neither is this idea alien to the great families. Among the famous American dynasties, the belief in destiny surfaces in two ways. One, the sense of calling. Take the Cabot family of Boston as an example. This dynasty, like most, goes back for centuries. After choosing the winning side in the Revolutionary War, it always helps to choose the winning side in anything. The Cabots built family wealth on the wide variance of calling among their children. Not just any calling, however, for child after child grew up to become a professional who riveted another pillar for his family in the community. Perhaps no other family has had such diversity of professionalism. Industrialists, merchants, doctors, lawyers, architects, US senators, ambassadors, judges and sea captains. The great wealth of the family did not emerge until the end of the 19th century. At that time, Godfrey L. Cabot founded his famous carbon black industry. Nevertheless, the diversity of occupational callings and the sense of general calling sustained the Cabot family for well over a century. 2. Vision 
We said earlier that the man or woman with a sense of destiny sees himself or herself as special. This sight spills over into the ability to visualize opportunity and success. Almost all of the founders of the great dynasties possessed vision. Mayor Guggenheim was a man of vision. In the mid-19th century, he saw that the manufacturers made the big profits on the goods he was peddling, so he started to manufacture in a small way a few items. One day, he made enough money to buy a few mines in Colorado. When his partners sold out because the mines were flooded, he knew better. He caught the vision for what lay in those mines. That vision gave birth to creativity. He travelled to Colorado, had the mines pumped out, and founded one of the largest silver mines in Colorado. It produced $750,000 the first year. What was the difference between Guggenheim and his partners? He had the vision which turned into creativity and fortitude. He was a man of destiny. It's interesting to see how many of the great fortunes were a result of supposed chance, the famous Daisy Bradford oil well in East Texas was the one which made the Hunt family fortune is a case in point. The original site for the well was several hundred feet from the famous gusher. The story is that rain and mud kept the mules from pulling the rig to the original site. The only thing that could be done was to stop the rig and sink a well at the point where the wagon could be pulled no further. Was this chance? This was destiny. The Hunt family is not yet a dynasty since it takes at least a century to produce one. No doubt, however, they are a family of destiny. Actually, they are two families of destiny. They came from the two wives of H.L. Hunt. To build a great dynasty, they must recognize the fact and reproduce this dynastic mentality in their offspring. Discipline. Second, Along with destiny, we find that discipline must accomplish a sense of destiny. Guggenheim had to be disciplined enough to see the job of pumping those silver mines to the end. He had to be willing to work. Hard work built the large financial dynasties. They did not just happen. The common man has a mythical view of the children of these dynasties. He thinks the children are lavished with wealth with which they can buy every toy available. Certainly, this happens in some cases. If a family was to keep its wealth, however, the children had to learn the value of a dollar. In fact, many of these large families have had the practice of not leaving large sums of money to the children. The general rule was, quote, don't leave so much money that the children have to devote time to spending it, unquote. Many times this rule was implemented by some sort of discretionary inheritance to make the heirs earn their own way. Godfrey Cabot, for example, did not leave his heirs a large amount of money. Why? He believed that real prosperity should come to them through their own diligence and not through his death. Therefore, he helped them while he was still alive to get started in business. If the effort failed, the heir didn't receive any inheritance. In other words, the faithful received the blessing. By doing this, he made them become disciplined. Dominion. 
Third, the ability to dominate is the final characteristic. Many have and can make a sudden fortune, either through an inheritance, lottery, hot tip on the stock market or other ways. But it is another matter to stay on top. Moreover, staying on top is difficult. But even harder is the use of wealth to dominate people and ideas. In other words, have dominion. The avoidance of corruption. In the super dynasties such as the Sassoons and the Rothschilds, discipline and dominion come together in an interesting way. The ability to use vice without becoming addicted to vice. This illustrates the general principle that even if men's hearts are not submissive to God, God will bless their efforts externally if they can follow certain fundamental principles. This self-discipline of avoiding vice year after year, no matter how close at hand, is one such principle. Take the Sassoons. Stanley Jackson has written a biography of the Sassoons where he calls them the Rothschild of the East. The Sassoons, New York, E.P. Dutton and Company, 1968, page 3. Their dynasty goes back to Sheikh Sassoon. His descendants would use the modern variation of Sassoon. In 1778, he had risen from coin collector to the most influential banker of Baghdad. They were Orthodox Jews, like the original Rothschild, and quite dedicated to the expansion of Judaism. Jackson summarizes the family. Quote, Sheikh Sassan supervised the secular welfare of his people, but also provided funds for religious education. With the rabbis, he inspected ritual baths and ensured that the slaughterhouses and dairies conformed strictly to the dietary laws. Doorposts had to be checked every three years to see that the mezuzahs, tiny scrolls of the holy law encased in metal strips, were in good repair. Orphan girls were given diaries, rabbis, travellers, and pilgrims from the Holy Land, even from distant China, were welcomed in the Nazis, Sheikh Sassoon's official title, house, where they took their ease in a walled courtyard, shady with orange trees and shrubs. End quote. Pages 3 and 4. Sheikh Sassoon even made a point to help start a synagogue, if there were none, in every city he travelled to. It was under this kind of discipline that his son, David Sassoon, began to learn the trade of his father, from his earliest age, he sat in the counting house with his father and learned about money, borrowing and lending. In his case, he mostly loaned and made money. Due to a change in local power in Baghdad, the family had to move. David was the first to leave and seek his fortune in another city. With coins sewn in the lining of his clothing, he fled for his very life. Eventually, he ended his search for a new home in Bombay, India. It was here, through his sons, that the, great, that the great wealth of the Sassoons was achieved. Discipline leads to dominion. Jackson adds, quote, The cotton magnate and first Parsi baronet, Sir Jamasitji Jijinboy, once declared emphatically that, quote, The chief cause of David Sassoon's success was the use he made of his sons, end quote. He trained them to be chorus masters with himself as the conductor, End quote. Page 31. The conductor and the chorus masters made the family fortunes through real estate, cotton and opium in the East. 
Elias was the son of David Sassoon. Jackson refers to him as the black sheep, so to speak, and the one who seized the opportunity in the opium market. Pages 51 and following. Ironically, it is here that we learn one of the great principles of dominion in a perverted form. Let's look at the perverted version first so that we can accent the biblical principle. Through Elias's travels in China, he perceived, vision, that great fortunes could be made through opium. He was a rebel and fell out of favour, unofficially with the family for hiring outsiders, non-Jews, in the family business. But through all of this, Elias Sassoon displayed the rare ability to use vice without becoming addicted to vice. Even if Jackson happens to be wrong in his findings about the origin of the Sassoon's fortune, although this seems unlikely, we see the same principle in operation elsewhere. The Italians and Jews who immigrated to this country and became involved in organised crime illustrate the same kind of thing. All their lives they had been served wine with meals and learned how to drink without becoming drunkards. How did this help them to become powerful in organised crime? Thomas Sowell explains in the following description of the Italian rise to power among organised crime in the 1920s. Quote, Organised crime had existed in the United States before Italians became part of it. The leading gangsters were Irish or Jews on into the 1920s. The introduction of prohibition greatly increased the scope of organised crime in the United States at about the same time that Italians were entering it in force the bootlegging of liquor and the operation of illicit drinking places, often in conjunction with gambling or prostitution, became big business and a highly competitive business. The Italian gangsters had two decisive advantages in this violent and deadly competition. One, they could traffic in liquor without themselves becoming alcoholics and, and two, family loyalties were as central to Italian crime as to Italian life in general. Sobriety and loyalty were particularly important in a life-and-death business. End quote. Ethnic America, New York, Basic Books Incorporated, 1981, page 125. The principle of using vice without becoming addicted to vice has proven invaluable to all of the dynasties, even the families of the Mafia. The principle works because it is a corruption of an extremely important biblical truth which wise Christian parents teach their children. Negotiating around vice without losing integrity. We think of the spies who lodged in Rahab's household, Joshua chapter 2. We think of Moses who was in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. During one of the worst times in the history of Israel, a wicked centralist king named Ahab was on the throne. 1 Kings chapter 16 to 21. God raised up two important leaders, one on the outside, Elijah, and one on the inside, Obadiah, 1 Kings 18. Many Christians know about the great prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven. Unfortunately, few have even heard about the inside man, Obadiah. He was second in command next to Ahab, so he had a very high and important advisory so he had a very high and important advisory position with the king yet all the time he was advising the king 
he was able to hide out 100 profits in caves. He used his position under a status king to hide the profits and did not become addicted to statism or Baalism. The wise man who lives among unbelievers and their pagan ways is able to build the kingdom of God by negotiating around vice without losing integrity. That's difficult and takes a mature man in Christ, but the great men and women of the Bible did this time and again. To be specific, it may even mean using vice without becoming involved in sin. Pat Robertson, Original Strategy A modern example is the story behind the rapid growth of Pat Robertson's television ministry. He wanted people to own satellite reception dishes to receive his broadcasts. People inside the cable TV industry believe that Robertson, a lawyer, guessed that the satellite dish industry could have been stopped short or the satellite networks had been able to persuade Congress to make private home-owned satellite reception dishes illegal. So he devised an ingenious answer. He took the copyright off his broadcasts. Anyone can legally receive his network satellite broadcasts. Had the owner been approached by some government bureaucrat and told to take down his dish, he could always say, quote, I bought it so that I can watch the 700 Club, end quote. Thus, the federal government would find it very difficult to block the seal and installation of reception dishes. Quote, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, end quote. There was another secret of his success. When local cable stations were beginning to start up, owners knew there would be howls of righteous protest against softcore pornography and violence. R-rated movies were scheduled for broadcast by HBO and its competitors, and these would be the financial backbone of cable television's late-night programming. The cable operators needed a way to deflect criticism. Pat Robertson, Pat Robertson, became every operator's excuse. Look, he could say to his regulators, we offer a wide variety of programming. We have something for everyone. We have Christian programming too. Guess who's Christian programming? The man who got there first, Pat Robertson, being a man of destiny and discipline, had seen the opportunity. Even though HBO was going to show unacceptable movies, movies that Robertson would not have allowed to be shown if he had possessed the power to stop them, he still offered his free programming to cable stations. The result? Every station that picked up HBO also broadcast the 700 Club to subscribers as a free bonus. Not only did that become the stepping stone to the broad popularity of the station, but many have been converted as a result. This is the kind of discipline that, coupled with destiny and dominion, builds dynasties. We should understand, however, that the advent of sin in the world has corrupted man's will to dominate. The cross of Christ, however, renewed not only the will, but the ability to dominate. Regrettably, the modern Christian family has forgotten or hidden from what the unbeliever is self-conscious about. The great dynastic families, without a shadow of a doubt, attempt to dominate. They see nothing wrong with dominion, with wanting dominion, with having dominion, with studying dominion principles, and consequently, they have the dominion. 
For that matter, the basic patterns we have observed in mostly pagan family empires, destiny, discipline and dominion have been generally recognised by them. They may not call these principles by the same names, but the point is that pagan dynasties are self-conscious. The average Christian family is not even aware that God wants his family to grow and have great influence for generations. Not just one generation. Generational influence is powerful. The Christian family, therefore, fails by default. Summary. I have tried to answer one basic question. Who owns the family? Who owns the future generation? One, I answered this question by beginning with the case involving the father of a girl who was already in the covenant. A minister wanted to rebaptize her. When the situation went to court, it was ruled that the girl was in the covenant already. This indicates a certain rationale. Two, I call it the generational principle. Children of believers are to be placed in the covenant and trained in the ways of the covenant. God owns the future through the principle of generational expansion, through the principle of generational expansion of the faith. That's why the state tries to curb this kind of growth any way it can. For this reason, we need to become self-conscious about building for the future through our children. 3. A covenantal dynasty. I pointed out three biblical precepts involved in generational growth. Destiny, discipline and dominion. This world belongs to God's people. It will be here until all things are under the dominion of Christ. The way to arrive at victory is through the raising up of a holy seed from generation to generation. This concludes our 10 principles. Now it's time to apply this information and see what the family, church and state can do to put ownership back into the proper hands. Before we do that, however, I want to summarise in the next chapter what we have covered so far. Can you name all 10 principles? Can you remember some of the court cases? Can you recall the five-fold covenantal model? Let's turn to the following chapter and review before we move on to the applications section.